This June, we celebrate the 54th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, an immeasurably important event in queer American history with lasting effects felt to this day. Today, we're also joined by fellow librarian Thomas, three for three on this one, to talk about this seminal event and to have a discussion on the state of queer romance landia today, 54 years later. Hey there, romance nerds. I'm Jen. And I'm Jackie. We're two librarians from Nopal in upstate New York, and you're listening to Raging Romantics. In this podcast, we like to think a little too deeply about romance books. If you're into theory, history, and raging about romance landia, then you should stick around. Please be advised that some of the things we talk about may not be suitable for younger listeners. Content warnings for episodes are available in the show notes. Jen, are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. All right. Let's rage! all you jen oh cool i wasn't <laughs> sure we were sorry i forgot what we were doing i'm all messed up with thomas here <laughs> hey jackie and thomas yes why do melons have weddings why because they cantaloupe <gasps> oh no no you got to come up with another one because use the cantaloupe one with romeo and juliet i said yes oh my did. god i forgot i was just thinking oh it's marriage and i could have made like a marriage. but at least now gay people can get married i was gonna be how i tied it uh, <laughs> nope. Uh, cut. <laughs> hey, Jackie and Thomas. Yes. Yeah. Why do dragons sleep during the day? Why? Because they like to fight knights. <laughs> <laughs> but make it gay. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, we, we're doing dragons because we're slaying home of home of. <laughs> You're so against it, you can't even say it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't pronounce anything. Oh my Never goodness. Mind. I just give up on segways. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, in case you can't tell, it is a Saturday evening. We are slap happy as all get out. We have one of our favorite ex co workers with us, Thomas. Yay. Thomas, introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, where you are, what, 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 all the things. I'm Thomas. Okay. I'm a adult services librarian, and I used to work at Noble, but I no longer do. Well,. Uh, is that all of our banter? <laughs> That's pretty good. Okay, cool. Well, thank you for joining us, Thomas. And yes, like you said, he did used to work with us at Nopal, but now he's over at the Marcellus Library. So if you are ever in the Marcellus area, go hit him up over there. They have a very cute little library. It's actually not little. It's a good-sized library. So Yeah, come, come ask for romance recommendations. Yeah, and Thomas has a romance book club, too. Yes, I do. Come join. What's it called? It's called the Romance Book Club. <laughs> we haven't gotten around to giving it a cute to name, but we're still fledglings. Okay. We're still young, so we got time. You got lots of time. When do you meet? We meet every fourth Tuesday from 5.30 to 6.30 in the local history section. We're a great group of people. And what are you reading this month? This month, month we are reading Red, White, and Royal <gasps> Blue by Casey McQuiston. Oh, we're going to talk about that later. So it's going to be fun. Excellent. Excellent. Well, hey, speaking of libraries, Thomas was a former employee of Nopal Branches, but me and Jackie are current employees, so yes. I feel like it's part of my job to remind you guys that Raging Romantics is brought to you through Northern Onondaga Public Library. I know we were, you know, stupid enough to let Thomas get away, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't go in and support us. Yeah. Please. So, th during this Pride Month, like always, please go in and check out a queer romance or a queer program, or like we said in our last mini-sode, say something really nice about somebody. Yeah. Let's spread some positivity and love this this month because it's going to be really hard for a couple of libraries out there, especially if you are in a state that is 
going through some stuff. Yeah, that's a polite way to put it. Thank yeah. you, Jackie. You're I was welcome. trying to think of it <laughs> diplomatically. Uh, we are fairly lucky here in New York. So if there's anything you guys can do to help, like Texas, Florida, Arkansas, some of these like states that are under a little more stress, yes. we'll put. You can also uh, help out local libraries that way. So any way you guys can support us. Yeah. Go to ALA.org. Mm-hmm. That's the American Library Association.org. And they have a lot of good information on book bannings, how you can support libraries and librarians. And like Jen said, just yeah. visit your local library. And if they shush you, you let us know. And we will come at them with a shushing stick in return. Yes. That's all. But if you live here, you can just come and visit. Yeah, we won't shush you. Yeah, no, we're great. Most of the time. Anyways, let's move on. And we're going to talk today about Stonewall, Queer Romancelandia. And we're going to have a generally fun discussion, although we do have to cover some heavier stuff. Following World War II, the mid-20th century saw a sweeping wave of civil rights movements. People of color and black Americans, women, LGBTQIA plus community members, and other marginalized members of society all sought freedom from pervasive issues of discrimination and persecution with various degrees of success. Social movements, activist organizations, and protest culture during this time became synonymous with the civil rights era. And major strides were made in the American socio-political sphere to grant rights to those who previously had had none or were limited. Today, we're going to be looking at the queer civil rights movement in particular and talking about the Stonewall Riots, a name I think most people will recognize but might not know much about. Now, as a disclaimer, I am focusing on the relevance of Stonewall today, but it's important to note that while these riots were incredibly important to queer civil rights, the storm had been brewing long before the first bottle was thrown that summer night in 1969, and it's still on the horizon today. Our atmosphere is fraught right now, to say the least, especially when it comes to queer rights. We're not going to be diving into any politics talk today, mostly because I am not that brave. I don't want to get fired! (laughs) But also because I want this podcast to be a safe space. We're going to be talking about history and accepted events and how those events are still relevant. We at Raging Romantics are proud allies and members of the queer community, and so we will stand in solidarity with our friends in these communities. We do not tolerate hate speech, bullying, homophobia, or any of its ilk. So let's go into this discussion with open minds and open hearts, and we can talk about some truly amazing books and history along the way. As a second caveat, you guys know I like to get my tongue tied around things, so I'm going to be using the term queer unilaterally today just because, like I said, I know I won't get tongue tied. But in so doing, I am referring to all members of the LGBTQIA family, LGBTQIA plus community. Um, We might interchangeably mention gay, queer, lesbian, trans, etc., but when I use queer, just know that I mean all of our LGBTQIA friends out there. I would like to have a more of a discussion after we get through the history part because I know Jen and Thomas definitely have opinions and have things to say. Um, And this is such a big topic to try and cover in 40-ish minutes. So Jen, I know you don't have any issues, but Thomas, feel free to interrupt me. Whatever. Just like, or I don't know, wave a rainbow flag. Do that. Just be, (laughs) Okay, rough stuff out of the way. Let's have our regularly scheduled history lesson. I say that, but we still have to talk about some of the rough stuff. Sorry. Mainly what it meant to be queer in 20th century America, because, quelle surprise, being gay in American history was not an easy time. In fact, the first federal protection of queer rights wasn't enacted until 1982, meaning that all litigation prior was primarily focused on constitutional rights. The first cases to be brought before the Senate were in the 1950s and focused on freedom of speech, successfully challenging the post office seizures of lesbian and gay publications as allegedly, allegedly obscene. 
Successful freedom of speech cases also struck down bans on gay student groups at public colleges and universities. Refusal to issue parade permits for gay rights demonstrations, denials of nonprofit status to gay rights organizations, and exclusions of lesbian and gay groups from public fora. The outcome of this, however, and put a pin in this, you two, just like pin it right there. I'm nice and quiet. <laughs> um, the, the outcome of this was that bans began to be shifted from these public fora into private spaces, mainly bars and social clubs, meaning it would become nearly impossible to fraternize with members of your community openly and freely. This also meant that law enforcement raids on these establishments became regular, regularized, that's hard to say, and queer community members were arrested and prosecuted for supposed crimes such as solicitation, loitering, and vagrancy, and numerous other quote-unquote morality crimes. Consensual sodomy remained one of the most common charges brought against members of the queer community, especially against gay men, leaving them legally unable to hold jobs or be parents. Nexus laws weren't implemented until the 1980s, which meant that evidence of a parent's homosexuality's adverse impact on their child's welfare had to be considered in custody cases. Many courts then had imposed restrictions such as no overnight visitation on lesbian, bisexual, and gay parents living with same-sex partners, while still others barred parents from discussing aspects of their lives with their children or taking them to LGBTQ events. Sound familiar? Mm. Moving into the military sphere, Don't Ask, Don't Tell became synonymous with the armed forces. Enacted in 1994, this was the official federal policy on military service by lesbian, gay, and bisexual individuals and prevented service members from being openly queer without threat of being discharged. Don't Ask, Don't Tell was based on the false assumption that the presence of queer individuals in any branch of the military would undermine the ability of people to carry out their duties. It was repealed successfully in 2011, but I think it's safe to say that in the culture of the military and armed services, the nation's largest employer, effects of queer discrimination are still obvious today. Discrimination in employment, housing, and public accommodations were also indoctrinated in the system, leaving landlords and employers with free reign for terminating employment or housing with no, little to no warning or recrimination. Municipal and county ordinances barring these discriminations began to be passed in the 1970s, but it wasn't until 1996 when the Supreme Court upheld the Equal Protection Clause in Romer v. Evans that helped spur the passage of anti-discrimination laws at both the local and state levels. To the point where we now have state laws expressly barring sexual orientation discrimination in employment, housing, and public accommodations in 22 states, and expressly barring gender identity discrimination in 21, as well as more than 400 local ordinances providing similar protection. Unfortunately, however, to this day, there is still no individual law in the majority of states expressly prohibiting discrimination by private employers, landlords, or businesses against queer people. In 2020, there was the beginning of the movement when the Supreme Court held in Bostock Bostock versus Clayton County that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 protects employees against discrimination because they are gay or transgender. But as can be understood, things have moved slowly since then with the rest of the world's situation that we have faced since 2020. All of this to say... There have been significant strides made towards protecting individuals of the queer community and with different sexuality and gender expressions within the last 80 years. We've come a long way, even if we still have a long way to go towards making safe spaces for everyone in our communities. But where then did this all start? Yes, I know that's a leading question, I will admit, because I already said we're going to be talking about Stonewall. Even though that's not really where everything began, it was a watershed moment that no doubt held great impetus on these sweeping changes in our judicial and cultural systems. Now, it's time to take that pin out that we put in a couple minutes ago. 
Rewind to the statement I made about bans and morality cases, how they began to be brought into the private fora of bars and clubs. And specifically, let's move to the haven of counterculture on the East Coast, New York City, and specifically Greenwich Village. Again, post-World War II, as sanctions were moved against queer venues, the New York State Liquor Authority began to penalize and shut down establishments that served alcohol to known or suspected queer individuals, arguing that the mere gathering of homosexuals was, quote-unquote, disorderly. Regulations were overturned officially in 1966, meaning that LGBTQIA plus members could be served alcohol on Friday nights, but I'm sure you can imagine how tense that atmosphere would have been. Imagine, if you can, what it would have been like to be an ostracized member of society in the 1960s and 70s, trying to go out, just trying to have a relaxing evening with people just like you, not doing anything bad, not necessarily rabble-rousing, just trying to de-stress. You're at this club, having some drinks, dancing, having a good time, listening to music. You step outside into a world that wants to persecute you for just being who you are, what they perceive to be the height of sin and immorality. But back to Greenwich and to the mob, because mid-century the mob ruled the club and bar scene. And the crime syndicate saw the writing on the wall and the possible profit that could be made in catering to queer clientele. By the mid-1960s, the Genovese crime family... No, we don't awe them. But it's kind of nice. Like, I liked having, like... It could be, like, an enemies to lovers mafia. Okay, that would be a great book, actually. Yes, make it gay, like, super gay. That could be really cute. It's, like, the... um, I, I, I know this isn't the 20s, but if they have the... Like the, the flappers, yeah, the flappers and the the oh the speakeasies and oh, like the, the queer person is like running the the liquor across the border and it, it's just like a cute little business relationship. <sighs> and then they have that gets to deeper. like their enemy crime families. Yeah, but this then they could have be to run cute. The liquor together, and it's kind of nice too that the mob was like, "Hey, you guys deserve a drink too." Except, <laughs> oh no, no, I spoke too soon. In my defense, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no. Are you okay? I'm knocking myself out because I'm just so upset by homophobia. Oh my goodness. Okay. Oh god, no. <clears throat> Except. What did the mob do? By the mid-60s, the Genovese family controlled most Greenwich Village gay bars, and in 1966, they purchased Stonewall Inn, what had previously been a straight bar and restaurant, cheaply renovated it, and reopened it the next year as a gay bar. Now, on the surface, Stonewall, this was a great, right? Like Jen said, this was like, ah, yay! Gay mafia! Gay mafia, we love it. <laughs> Stonewall Inn was registered as a type of private, quote-unquote, bottle bar, which meant that it did not require a liquor license, so the New York State Liquor Authority could not be like, no, no, gay people. Um, it did not require a liquor license because patrons were supposed to bring their own liquor. So, yeah, it was like running hooch yeah. back in the 20s. Club attendees had to sign their names in a book upon entry oh no. to main the facade of false exclusivity, oh no. and it was a large club that was relatively cheap to enter. It did welcome drag queens, and it was a nightly home for many runaways and homeless gay youths, and it was one of the few, if not only, gay bars left that allowed dancing. Oh, cool. But oh no, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows, oh, unfortunately. Um, without police interference, because, of course, the police were on the take and they couldn't legally interfere since the club wasn't doing anything against New York State Liquor Authority, the Genovese could cut costs however they saw fit. There was no fire exit. There was no running water behind the bar to wash glasses. And there were no clean toilets. Oh, wait. So this is like normal capitalism stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought they were going to like sell the books to the police or something. That's not as bad. That's like what well... most landlords do. No! <laughs> 
mafia doing working with the cops? Because this is a 1960s crime novella, Ugh. the police conducted raids during this whole period because yeah. they were on the take. Of course. So they would tip off the Genovese family. They're like, hey, we're going to do this. If mm-hmm. you pay us all their entry fees for this night, then we'll just be like, hey, we're here to raid you. Right. That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly, like I said, the club would be tipped off about the raid and they would have time to prepare. For whatever reason, though, on the sticky hot evening of June 28th, 1969, the police raided the Stonewall Inn with a warrant for a trumped-up liquor charge. Again, remember, they don't have a liquor license, Mm -hmm. and things irrevocably changed. Police officers entered the club per force, roughed up patrons, and after finding bootlegged alcohol, because, you know, patrons are bringing their own liquor, they arrested 13 patrons, including employees and people violating the state's gender-appropriate clothing statute. Female officers even took suspected cross-dressing patrons into the bathroom to check their sex. Ew. Yeah. And then I can't help but laugh at this next part because, of course, the trouble really kicked into gear when officers attempted to secure the arrest of a lesbian patron, hit her over the head to force her to the van, and she shouted at the onlookers, aren't you going to do something? Mm. Because, of course, it was a lesbian. I just love that for Mm. us. And that was the rallying cry. The crowd took control. They threw pennies, bottles, bricks, cobblestones, and other objects at the officers. The police, a few prisoners, and a village voice writer barricaded themselves inside the bar, which the mob attempted to set on fire after breaching the barricade repeatedly. The, the Italian mob or the people mob? The people mob. Oh, the gay okay. people. So the Italian We're all mob like, is set like, it on fire. It's like way gone now. Yeah. Okay. The mob was like, you know. Oh, I thought like the, there was going to be more in play with the mafia. I was just no. excited about the No, Genesis. they were just like the evil overlords well that's fine that's just capitalism i thought they were gonna be like really maliciously evil no they're aside from like the normal just, malicious crimes they do the, i know they're bad people i was just was like oh it's nice they had like this one little shining thing what's it called like when you commit manslaughter but you don't really mean to it just happens isn't that still oh, whoopsie <laughs> yeah they were mans- like whoopsie okay i thought there was still manslaughter Okay, maybe it is. We're not legal people. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> I, I think people have long since realized this. It's 68 episodes in. They know this by now. Okay. <laughs> Anyways. Um, yeah, so the police, a couple okay. of the prisoners who were like, we can't get out. And then this village voice writer barricaded themselves in for a day or two. Um, and remember, the cheap renovation meant that there were no fire escapes in the club. So they mm-hmm. were in there. The building yeah. was on fire. The fire department and a riot squad were eventually able to douse the flames, rescue those inside Stonewall, and disperse the crowd. But the protests, sometimes involving thousands of people, wow. continued in the area for a total of six days, stretching down Christopher Street and into Christopher Park. The village voice writer who had been barricaded inside released an article on July 2nd causing, causing further incitation. Anger flared at both the cops and the writers of the piece who used discriminatory language against gay patrons, oh. causing further protests, and even led to a march on the voice headquarters so, in so retaliation. I'm, who's protesting at this point? The gay people. It is. Okay. And so it's not New like there isn't like a counter protest yet, especially no, with this no, village there's voice. There's so many like um, queer marchers and gay community members and just city members in general who are so upset mm-hmm. that... Um, they, they just go off and they're like, yeah, no, we're sick of this. This okay. is dumb. And they're mostly against the cops at this point. They're really angry at the village voice, which mm-hmm. I read the article and I was like, oh, my God. OK, and I'll link it in the show notes and I'll mm-hmm. send it to you, too, so you can read it. But it was like, he said that. I thought the village voice was cool. And this is the guy that was barricaded with <clears> them. So he like spent a day with them and he's still like, he was ah. with the cops. Oh, OK. Remember, he was, was barricaded. There were prisoners. Okay. There were like two or three prisoners, I think. Mm-hmm. But they never really say like what the prisoners okay. were in prison for. Mm-hmm. So or if they were just like just there bystanders. Okay. Yeah. So 
Yeah. Where was I? Was that something the Village Voice ever apologized for? Like a 2030? Yeah. Okay. They did um, take it back in the 90s. Okay. And then I read an article that I will link. I think it's from 2007 where they're like, I can't believe we allowed this to get published. <laughs> so I was like, yeah. Time. Oops. Anger flared, like I said, at both the cops and the writers, causing further protests and even led to a march on the Voice headquarters in retaliation. In short, the city was rocked by angry marchers and protesters, the heat of the summer flaring as protection of gay rights was advocated for, and rioters led marches. Remember, we were going into the summer of 1969, into the Nixon era, into the anti-war protests, the March on Washington, Satanic Panic, Manson Bundy, Serial Killer Slew, and the time of our country's history that would lead to civil rights changes and would forever ingrain protests in our recent history's mind. The quote-unquote culture wars were in full effect, and Stonewall was part of the larger scene lending its weight to the cause of gay rights. It was a galvanizing force for queer political activism, leading to numerous gay rights organizations, including Gay Liberation Front, Human Rights Campaign, GLAAD, formerly Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, and PFLAG, formerly Parents, Families, and Friends of Lesbians and Gays. Stonewall was only six hot summer days in 1969, but those six days would forever change the gay pride scene in our nation, even leading to the first Pride March in commemoration one year later in 1970. New York's first Pride Parade, named the Christopher Street Liberation Day, was held in June of 1970, and since then, Pride Parades have become a cornerstone of visibility and pride in our country and indeed across the world. That first parade's official chant, say it loud, gay is proud. I don't want to downplay any of the discrimination our queer communities still face today. Indeed, as we talked about in our mini-sode that came out last week, we're at a frightening level of legal actions banning social and cultural tension and fear-mongering, perhaps to the greatest level we've seen since Stonewall days. But I want to focus on the good, because this is Pride Month, damn it. We deserve hey! to be proud of who we are, and I owe Jen a quarter. Although, is, damn it, it's in the Bible, so does it count? Oh, yeah. You want to go ask Mandy? <laughs> so let's thrilled. talk about our favorite thing in the world, gay romance books, because a happy gay love story is honestly one of the best things out there, in my humble opinion. Queer romances have been around, honestly, since the earliest writings. There have been gay love stories in Sappho, I Am Looking at You. But for modern publishing, they have been mostly quiet stories. Small publishing lines, indie authors, perhaps shelved in with erotica or buried spine out halfway down the shelf. Oftentimes, they were even shelved completely away from the rest of the romances in bookstore. I remember this at Borders, like they yeah. would be in a completely separate section. And in libraries, they were just shelved alongside everything else. I mean, that's kind of how libraries do things, but there was like nothing really to call attention to them, which was on purpose, and we can talk about that. Their visibility was incredibly limited, and a lot of the times the stories they told were filled with trauma and pain for the queer characters. Jen, Thomas, it is time to weigh in. I ask you to remember the queer books we had in middle school and high school in the early 2010s. Do you recall any titles in particular? I'm thinking there were a lot that I saw in my high school library. Uh, okay, you're younger than us. When did you graduate? Yeah, I graduated in 2016. <laughs> so. Oh my god, <laughs> I feel so old. Yeah. Uh, okay. So when I was in middle school, this wasn't yeah thing either. So but. like your middle school was equivalent with our high school then. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was seeing books like The God Box. I don't know if you remember. No. That. So. Oh, I know that author. Yeah, Alex Sanchez. Right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. Oh. Okay. So I would see like The God Box by Alex Sanchez. He also had another series. It was yeah. like the Rainbow High series. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I did not pick them up. 
because I didn't understand the value of camp. Yeah. <laughs> and they're quite campy. Yes. Uh, so it wasn't until... Well, actually, I was in the eighth grade when I read my first queer character. Do you remember who it was? Yes, it was Alec Lightwood Hi. in Cassandra Clare's oh, wow. City yeah. of Bones. And that Look was that's come. a big Fan deal. Yeah. yeah. Yes. That was a big deal at the time. And wow. I remember reading it and being just amazed and speaking with my friends about it. Be like, did you know? <laughs> there could be gay characters There in books. could be gays. And it wasn't like just there could be. There was. Yeah. It was mm-hmm. named. Did you go to a small school or a big school, medium size? I went to a medium size school. Okay. It was a city school, so it okay. wasn't like okay. any tiny thing. I went to a very small country school. And oh, Jen, okay. we know, went to high school in, a, in trailers. <laughs> and- Only one! <laughs> Okay, one trailer. Yeah, I'm sorry. Elementary school. Oh my, no, my high school was. I had 500 people in my high, like in my class. There were 2,000 total. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Okay. We did not have tractors going to school. <laughs> we had tractor day. Yeah, we had issues with like having to ban colors because we were gang colors. Yeah. 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 That yeah, I. Yeah. Remember. That's. That we couldn't wear bandanas. It. Because of gangs. No, because they would have grease on them. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I went to a hick school. Anyways. So this is really sad, but when you said that about your first gay character, I realized probably technically mine is Dumbledore from Harry Potter. Oh. Which is really depressing. And that wasn't like canon until... No, well, it, she claimed it was canon. Well, it's also J.K. Rowling. Yeah. So, I mean, we just think really about that her. fall from grace. And I remember being, to be honest, because there was so little, there was such little representation. I was really impressed that I was like, wow, J.K. Rowling is really taking yeah. like a risk by, by saying Dumbledore's gay, even though it never appeared in the books. It right. was just like her own... Theory and, how and that she was wrote only him. after fanfic was like he's gay. <laughs> was it fanfiction? Yeah. I thought it was just like somebody asked her. She like offered it up. It was like a weird. Oh, the way I remember it was like it got so big in fanfiction, okay. and then they were like, "Is he?" And she's like, "Yeah." Okay, I don't remember the origin of it to be honest. I just remember that, and there were all the think pieces of like, "Wow, she's really brave. Look at her for doing this," and just what a fall from grace, and just could have been so great. Yeah, because going through my Goodreads now, I'm like, "Yeah, it was Harry Potter technically." If you want to like go by J.K. Rowling's thing. But so I'm a little bit older than Thomas. I'm not going to say how old, but I think growing up, I mostly saw coming out stories. Yeah. Or like things about how sad and difficult it was. Yeah. One of the first ones that I remember is Miseducation of Cameron Post, which is about a girl who gets sent to a conversion camp. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And of all the YA and adult romances I read during that time, I genuinely can only think of like two or three that had queer elements in them. Like we were, we're struggling over here to really recall anything from that time period outside of maybe fanfic. And the ones that I read were on the spicier side of the spectrum. (laughs) And obviously these were not the YA romances. Um, Aristotle and Dante came out in 2012, but even then it's a deeply complex story about coming of age. Like Jen was saying, like Mm -hmm. reckoning with yourself and coming out. I feel like it wasn't until the late teens and specifically 2019 that we start seeing the shift. And in my mind, a lot of this has to do with the success of one book in particular, red, white and Royal blue came out in 2019. And Jen's thinking about this. We're going to talk about this. This is why I wanted to bring this up. Sorry, I just was rereading what you said. Cause so, like, what is what's new about so just because it has joy in it? Yeah. Oh, partly like it's that can't be right. But at the same time, I'm struggling to think of any. Yeah. No, that's well. Maybe it's like I think maybe it's that's when it went mainstream. Yes. Because I bet probably in indie in these smaller plus presses, yes. you would have these different kinds of stories. And that's what I was saying earlier. It's like it was a lot quieter, I think, yeah. and you would see it in indie or small press or like um, online. Mm-hmm. But 
I mean, which is also surprising, too, because Kindle Unlimited, we always talk about like um, Fifty Shades of Grey being yeah. a great push for online and ebooks mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. But even I'm thinking of like uh, outside of the spicy, I can't really think of well, anywhere YA where had it was to like, have had plenty. I know YA definitely had a ton of those coming out stories. Yeah. But I think they must have been first. Right? Like, Thomas is nodding. Do you? I know the timeline. Okay. okay. Because I was a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> I was Yo, the, wee babe. <laughs> I was the target audience when all of this was happening. Yes. The queer explosion started in YA. Yes, yes, yes. That The queer explosion, I mean, I'm not talking about uh, indie spaces, but, like, real mainstream stuff. Yes. And we really saw that with Adam Silvera happening in 2015 yes. and Becky Albertalli they both die at the in end. 2015. Yeah, they both die at the end. And uh, Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda. Yes, oh, yep, yep. Came out when I was a senior in high school. I remember reading it. And I was so disappointed because, I mean, it's a great book. Becky Albertalli is a very good writer. But I was in a stage in my life where I was looking for a very different kind of book. I mean, I was, and I still am, the kind of person who is only here for a good time book. I only read rom-coms. I don't read, quote unquote, very dark, serious literature. And so at that time, I was reading a lot of Jenny Han, Siobhan yes. Vivian, Morgan Matson, these very, you know, fluffy, fun romances. And I finally was like, oh, it's a queer book. It's about a queer person. And it was a problem book. And I think it was very important. I think it's still important to have coming out stories, especially at that time. Yeah. But I was at a very different stage in my life. And so by the time we got to Queer Joy, we're talking 2019, I was a senior in college. That was four years later. (laughs) So it's interesting. You can't see the face I'm making right now. (laughs) Um, Yes, I would like to establish a timeline because when I said 2019 was the start, I did mean the start of adult Queer Joy romances, Mm -hmm. like mainstream that we've been seeing the explosion of today. I do want to take it back to when I, I forget somebody was talking about I think it was, anyways, 2008 was the official start of the new adult genre. Did you guys know that? Yes. Yes. With St. Martin's <laughs> Press, they held a contest in 2008 where the contest rule was cutting edge fiction with protagonists who are slightly older than young adult, fiction similar to young adult that can be published and marketed to an adult. And this was age range like 18 to 30. And it was specifically plots touching on first apartment, shitty cars. It's a quote. So you don't want your quarter. <laughs> Being broke, navigating this new quote unquote independent world and the other woes of adulthood. This evolving genre provides a dreamscape for queer authors to tell queer stories. Of course, heteronormative books also fall under this category, but this genre provided a different opportunity for queer stories. And what I was reading was especially, it was mine and Jen's, your age, kind of that millennial, older Gen Z who were reading these books when we were younger, who were you know, the coming out, the trauma, like the darker, heavier stories. And then this time period hits and we have the power to start writing a little bit older, a little bit more fun. Now we're going into college. We're going out into the real world. So now it can be stories about queer joy and stories like, oh my gosh, queer romance, queer rom-com. And then 2016 happened. 
And if you've read the acknowledgments in the back of Red, White, and Royal Blue, Casey McQuiston says specifically that the moment they heard the result of the 2016 election, not to get political, I'm not venturing that hard into it, I promise, they were like, this is the moment when I decided to write Red, White, and Royal Blue. And as we've talked about in publishing, it takes like three years for that main book to come out. So 2019, we get Red, White, and Royal Blue. And its mainstream success really helped to push publishers and you know tiktok took off during this time and social media to really realize queer explosion has the possibility and i think since then that we've really started seeing this uprising of gay joy books gay joy romance are we in agreement yeah okay cool thanks that's it cut the episode no okay <laughs> jen's thinking very hard over there she's got thoughts and opinions i mean i don't know if it's a thought or opinion i'm just really racking my brain because i think like it's really disappointing if it's only like it's only been four years yeah that can't be possible but i'm like god can i think of anything i think the only thing i I, maybe you missed a little bit did you ever read david lathiathan growing up yes he was probably the only one that did have some but i remember that being queer joy it's heavier it is it's definitely not a lot of death in there not a lot of death there's like some there's no hea guaranteed (laughs) the the dog dies sometimes (laughs) sometimes i don't know but i'm just thinking of like sparks maybe not maybe it really i guess so and i I feel like part of it i know i definitely agree red ride and royal blue had like a major point of it but i I think there uh, was also like a demand for this yeah because definitely for a gazillion years fan fiction has been gay yeah for like always forever (laughs) and then i think with those kids growing up and wanting more and wanting it in publishing and wanting more representation of like you know we we do more than just come out of the closet yeah. i think like publishing was just forced to listen i, th- I feel like red wine and royal blue was like the proof it was the it was the hammer in the face yeah yeah that's for a good sure. way to put it yeah i don't know i'm just thinking a lot i don't know i might i might not have stuff like that's okay it's just in my brain no, that's good that was good and for those of you who are like what the heck is red white and royal blue well you've been living under we've a rock let me say i think it. if you're yeah we've definitely yeah. talked about it um it is a contemporary rom-com it does have a little bit some heavier themes in there of like i keep saying millennial burnout that must be my phrase <laughs> of life recently but it talks a little bit about that it's um a romance between the grandson of the queen of england r.i.p lizzie and the son of the first female latina president of the united states which we can all dream um it's forced proximity fake dating queer happiness some struggles along the way and parts of the story still stick with me to this day it's even four years later mostly the turkey if you know you know um it's since been a runaway bestseller casey has put out two more successful books since and they have a fourth title slotted to be released i believe this fall or winter and jen and i actually had the opportunity to hear them speak this past winter in syracuse and it was so inspiring it was such a good talk it really was um, but I thought we could now have a conversation about queer romance landia today and talk about what we think of like how it fits into queer joy in particular, like pride and all this sort of stuff. Um, so why do you guys think we kind of touched on it? Why do you think queer romance has been so big in the past couple of years? If we're establishing 2019 is kind of like that rough baseline four years, it's been huge. I feel like I need a talking stick. No, sorry. <laughs> I mean, if you want to go no, for no, it. No, okay. I have well because I guess the way you said that I one of my impulses too to think about is who's writing the queer joy books because for a really long time it was mostly straight women right so I feel like we kind of had to get through those growing pains and kind of like giving more space for actual queer authors to write 
Yeah, and I think book, that's there, an argument still to this day. Yeah. It's like, why are white straight women writing gay boy books? Yeah, because there's still a ton of it in erotica. Yeah. And in, like, yeah. these indie spaces. And some of that, again, like, goes back to fan fiction, not to beat the fan fiction drum. <laughs> but I do wonder, <laughs> like, I I already used the word growing pains, but I do think there there had to be some growing pains to just get us through the period of, like, only coming out stories. Okay, like, straight women get all these opportunities first, and you kind of have to build up like a not a tolerance of that but a like oh i'm so mad at this i'm gonna go write my own book i wonder too if that's a holdover from like ya sphere because the majority of writers in the past today mm-hmm. this has come a long way has been you know white straight women who yeah. write ya books mm-hmm. and i wonder if that was just kind of a holdover moving into the adult romance side yeah because we've talked before a lot of people do not take women writers seriously right. and like they don't take ya seriously you so it's like say. okay here's your cute little story where it's for teenagers yeah yeah kind of a thing it's like anything with romance must be ya yeah because why I mean, would that's adults how read romance we've gotten into a lot of trouble with that with lots of different genres and yeah. things and Thomas. I don't remember the rest of the question. I'm it's sorry. Okay. I'm still just no, like. No, it's okay. I was literally just this being like, what was Why do you think was? queer romance has been so big in the past few years? In the past four years? If we're establishing 2019 as that rough baseline of like adult romance explosion. I hate saying explosion so much. I think too, we've just gone through so much stuff. Yeah. Like it's. I feel like I'm whining a little bit after listening to you talk a lot about the, the kind of difficulties that the the queer community went through, like, during the Stonewall period. It still very much sucks today, though. It does. And, like, it's just still between, hard. Again, not getting to politics. I'm staying so far away from that. But, like, just let's go with the pandemic. Yeah. Like, I think there has just been a need and a, a want for more joy just in general. And, yeah, of course, especially um, queer people are going to want to see themselves represented. I think it's also really important to remember that more and more people are identifying as queer mm-hmm. than ever before. And it's I think it's a mix of it being, s- quote, unquote, safer to come out. Maybe people are a little more knowledgeable. Maybe people have, like, more opportunities to come out. Because, like, I think it's a lot easier to be independent today than in 50 years ago where you need oh, yeah. more of a social system. You know, like... It, if you were going to get kicked out of the house today, it's a different thing. Yeah. Still awful and horrific, but yes. there's more charities. I think you it's a little easier to take care of yourself you, to get to that point, to be away from like your community, your social support. I think, support. too, there's more social networking available yeah. today than there was back, you know, as much as we harp on cell phones and as much as yeah. we're like, we need to be off our cell phones and mm-hmm. off of social media, I think that it has created a wider community that we can fall back in yeah. and more spaces where we can find people like ourselves yeah. for good or for bad. Yeah, like get help, support, yeah. anything like that. I think, too, it's more, again, it's so hard because to certain pockets of the country, this is very much not acceptable. But it's more acceptable in some ways to live a different kind of life than your parents left. So it's not even so much like. I think it's almost expected in a lot of places, At this point, yeah. But it's not even like. So even if you weren't queer, it's totally normal to not be married till like, you're 45. Or or to not have children. It's just, like, there's more possibilities for your life in some ways. And, again, this is so hard because, like. Yeah, it's not equivocal across the board. It is, yeah. So it's really difficult to talk about, but I do see just like there's more people who can explore their identities. I think people are a little kinder to people who aren't sure at first. Sometimes. Sometimes. Again, Sometimes. it depends. <laughs> Everything depends. God, please save me, Thomas. No, no, you're, you make a lot of sense. I think a lot of it is attributed to what you're saying, which is social progress. Mm-hmm. And that has at last found its way into the literature we're reading. Yay. This I is why Thomas is here. He sounds really smart. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Thank you, though. <laughs> you know. uh, and I also attribute the success of queer romance now to what 
YA had been doing for mm. so long. It was like a good stepping stone. It was a really great stepping stone. And the authors really fought for it. The readers really fought for it. Mm-hmm. Publishing. I mean, Publishing there's still a business. Where their money is. They're still a business, guys. Let's not forget. Yeah. There's still a business. It's still capitalism. Yeah. But, you know, they fought for it once they were like, oh, yeah, we can make money. It's like there are good people in publishing. There exactly. are, and there are editors and publishers out there who are like, this. these are the voices we want. And if you go to try to publish a book, agents will be specifically like, you know, this is the book I want. And they will lay it out to the letter. And they're mm-hmm. like, this is the book I want to hype. But again, it does all come back to capitalism. <laughs> it's like, yes, there are good people. But at the same time, their job is to sell books. Their job is mm-hmm. to sell the next bestseller. And if they don't feel it's not going to be a bestseller, if they don't feel they're going to make money on it, or if it's not going to be successful, then as sad as it is they don't want to put their weight behind it yeah unless they feel really strongly about it in some cases yeah and i think a lot of people felt very strongly about it and those good people all came together and we saw the rise of queer ya and we still see it today it's still thriving and i'm very happy to see that and that inevitably bled over into adult fiction because i mean those ya readers like me grow up (laughs) we grow up and we want more spice (laughs) exactly and so the uh the social progress and what we want to see and what we're hungering for in romance has finally bubbled its way to the mainstream and i also think it overlaps with the fact that romance is more accepted than I think it has ever Mm -hmm. been we got over ourselves (laughs) the literary (laughs) scene got over itself for the most part for the most part I mean there's still gonna be those people but I think also there's professionals like us three in the field who are like romance (laughs) and so we kind of shove it down people's throats and they don't have an option but to take it exactly I mean I nicely though you know yeah I, I interact with a lot of older readers who read romance and when I bring it up to them they talk about it as if it's something to be shameful for. They kind of laugh it off. And I talk to younger readers like us and we're very open about it. Exactly. And I mean, that is also uh, TikTok's fault (laughs) in social media, our ability to connect. I like that you brought up the older readers because recently I've been having, I have, I think Jen and I have become known as the romance librarians <laughs> in upstate New York. And especially here at my library, my clerks know if somebody's like, oh, I, I like romance. They're like, Jackie, let's go get Jackie. <laughs> and I've had a handful of people recently who have come in and they're like, oh, you know, I like I like Daniel Steele. And I used to read Nora Roberts. And I like Robin Carr. I'm like, okay, so here's Tessa Bailey. Here's <laughs> like, um, um, I don't know, all these other people off the top of my head. And I'm like, and do you like Spice? And they're like, what's spice and I was like <laughs> do like spice <laughs> and I just slowly had them like spicier and spicier things and then they just kind of get enfolded in it sadly they have yet to come to book club but I'm working on it but it is really nice like you said to kind of get these readers who for the longest time were told you know romance isn't a good thing to read or you know they thought it wasn't a good thing to read for societal pressure or for whatever other millions of reasons we've talked about on this podcast um and now they're getting to experience the joy of modern romance books or to like even read backlog of older romance books. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a lot of fun. And maybe I can start pushing, uh, gently pushing <laughs> <laughs> queer romance books on them too. Yeah. 
I really like that point you said about how people are just being more open about what they love, like thanks to things like TikTok. I don't want to give TikTok a lot of credit. Jen I'm not like, TikTok with a I'm not a TikTok passion. person at all. But I do think just with social media coming out, people are much more used to presenting aspects of themselves that they wouldn't have even 20 years ago, for better or worse. I mean, you yeah. can definitely argue a lot of worst, but I think people are just much more comfortable being like, yeah, I love romance and they really make it more a part of their personality than I think they would have had the opportunity before. So, yeah, if, if you're queer, then obviously you want to see yourself represented in romance. And it's more an aspect like of a public facing aspect. than I think it could have been off of that. Can we kind of spin our discussion now to talk about like the aesthetic of the romance novel, of the gay romance novel, <laughs> queer romance novel? Because with social media, mm-hmm. I feel like especially so um, if, if you guys aren't on social media and you have no idea what the heck I'm talking about. We're too online. Bookstagram, book Instagram mm-hmm. was known for its exceedingly elaborate like so they called flat lays where you put a book down if you've ever seen like a fancy book picture this is a flat lay it's like got props and it's colorful and it's like might have like sparkles or all sorts of stuff I'll link some um, examples of my favorites in the show notes for you guys Um, but that's what Instagram kind of became known for so pretty pretty became what would sell right and I think we definitely could start seeing that I mean book covers the old adage of never judge a book by its cover is like completely false. Judge a book by its cover. We give mm-hmm. you full full reign. Go for it. It's fine. Still read the blurb, but you can judge it by its cover. And I think that with the onset of Bookstagram and Booktube to a certain extent being like, oh my God, this cover is gorgeous. That really had a play in like being like, okay, pretty covers sell books. Right now, what books are we selling? We're selling gay romance books. Let's make the covers as pretty as possible. And that was when we really start kind of seeing cartoon covers. Roland, cartoon covers, illustrated covers has been around since eons. Original romance were paintings, mm. right? Um, but I think that there's a certain aesthetic of contemporary rom-com, even historical rom-com. So contemporarily written rom-com, how's that? Um, and especially of the gay romance that is like this illustrated, animated pretty bright I keep calling them candy covers because they look like candy wrappers to me what do you guys think there's no really question there but what do you guys think about that I could talk about book talk too so (sighs) that's a whole different I guess I just I don't I don't know if I ever considered attaching that to queer books just because cartoon covers are used so widely and I always figured it was kind of the the publishing being a little bit lazy and like they don't want to hire a cover model see I argue the opposite I think it's both I do think it's both I think it is it's probably cheaper in some ways to just have an artist draw like do a mock-up no that's well like Fabio had to have been more expensive Okay, well, yeah, but that was Fabio. Yeah. But if you look at, like, artist fees and, like, mm-hmm. illustration fees, so publishers have illustrations solely just for their books. Yeah. So to the point where now you can, I can look at a book mm-hmm. and be like, oh, this person write, draws for Berkeley or this person draws for Penguin or something like that. Um, I forgot where I was going with that. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> the more you, I guess there is a certain type of of queer cover because I'm really like raking my brain and I don't oh and then I also want to talk about how uh the inclusivity you were talking about oh with like the because how they draw them because I I think you and I were both really annoyed and Thomas I don't know how you felt when cartoon covers really started taking Mm -hmm. dominance especially like when they redid the Tessa Dare covers I was like some of them are really hideous but I've been really seeing great pushes Mm -hmm. in inclusivity recently even to the point where i just read a book about um a man who had a prosthesis from his knee down Mm -hmm. and i was like oh okay and then i looked at the cover the cover had a prosthetic leg that's great and i was like oh this is amazing and then like we have you know plus size characters and characters Mm -hmm. of color and like 
non-binary and i think there's just so many options i know like in that end instance it is easier for an illustrated cover because i read an interview with olivia dade and she talked about how yeah it was just so much easier for them to draw like a like a fuller figured woman get Mm -hmm. like the belly rolls and all of that as opposed to like finding somebody to do that or have like a a more of a like a 50 shades cover of an object like a twilight kind of a thing they were their own time frame we're not going to talk about object covers i guess it's hard for me because it's really a case-by-case basis for me i guess i think that's where i'm landing on but now that you said that yeah i don't i can't think of a lot of queer books where the cover is like an object cover or it's just like a an abstract image i think it usually is like a drawing of something i can think of like indie published ones that are yeah they probably don't have that's mostly as somebody who's gone through like the cover design process there are specific illustrators that you like obviously you want to market towards an audience and so they like uh, they like the object covers or mm-hmm. they like the illustrated covers and like the rom-com setting. Um, monsters have started really getting that illustrated yeah. cover because you can draw a monster better that, than you can take a picture yeah. of it. <laughs> and you almost need to because I think sometimes it's hard for me to picture what the author is trying to yeah. describe. Like, yeah. Julian Graves, I really needed that picture. Jillian, yeah. Yeah. Titan, it's right over there. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I was like, where is it? On yeah, because I couldn't quite picture exactly what she was saying. That like, cover I had my, also is like, yeah, it's a great cover, and I had my own deal, my own ideas of gargoyles from the TV show and yeah. like the edges of roofs, yeah. but I didn't totally picture hers until like she needed that cover. Thomas, what do you think about the book cover aesthetic, cartoon cover debate? I don't like object covers we're gonna get that out of the way right now yeah, flowers are having a moment flowers flowers on covers. and swords and fantasy like, i get it. it's like insinuating the flower yeah there's a lot of symbolism i don't care like i don't think O'Kane. it belongs on my the romance bees. Cover. <laughs> <laughs> what are the, bees doing? the birds and the bees oh 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 sorry okay i thought you meant like a literal bee <laughs> oh no like bzzz, bee. <laughs> um i i think I don't know if this is was a factor into why they might have gone over into uh, illustrated covers, but I know a lot of people did not like having real people faces on covers, mm. and that was a big complaint in YA. Yeah. Oh, okay. Contemporary YA and fantasy YA. I mean, look at Sarah J. Mass's original covers. They were human, pe- human beings, yeah. terrible, and a lot of people just didn't like that. So when you do uh, illustration you can kind of it's not a real per- person's face so mm-hmm. it's maybe not influencing the person's perception of the characters when they're reading and that's interesting because jen was just like i need it to be able to see what the author's mm-hmm. talking about <laughs> it depends yeah yeah and that's yeah. like monster romance so i understand yeah. that i mean aliens monsters, aliens, monsters. anything dixon. with tentacles Dinosaurs. yeah <laughs> ruby, ruby dixon, dixon. Yeah. yeah 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 um i wonder if it's also i mean we as human beings even though we do want to share our love of romance i just said we're much more open about our love Mm -hmm. of romance there's still an insecurity Mm. inevitably as human beings and i think the publishing industry knows that Mm -hmm. and are we going to be more willing to buy a book with a human shirtless man on it and read it around town or are we going to be more willing to buy it and walk it around town if it's like an animated? If it's a candy cover. Yeah. Yeah. 
I understand what you're saying about that, but one of the problems I have with the illustrated cover is it blends over too much into YA. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes you don't know if a book is YA or adult, and that's why like Red, White, and Royal Blue had so many problems because it would get bought by high school libraries and then up it's on the banned book list because honestly it really should not be in a high school library. No. Like it is not. It's an adult romance. Yeah, like Sarah J. Moss should not be in high school libraries. No. That one should not be. There's a couple where it just like blurs it too much and it almost makes the book too childish. Mm -hmm. And I understand it's like a very difficult balance for the publisher to strike because you're right. Like, unfortunately, Fabio is out of style. I don't know why. (laughs) I think his pectorals are great. I would absolutely have that cover around town. Get it? But I understand, too, that, like, you know, most people are normal and have a, a <laughs> haven't been toting around yeah. the small paperbacks with shirtless yes, men their entire fair. lives. Fair enough. They did not grow up with, like, Sandra Hill and, yeah. you know. Step backs. Yeah. I would love to bring back I step would, backs. Mm-hmm. Yes. And if anybody doesn't know what a step back is, it's the image. If you can envision, like, an old school paperback, you had the front cover and then it would kind of, like, be shorter mm-hmm. than the inside cover. You'd open it and there'd be this gorgeous full artwork. And it was usually, like, the full on swoon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those were amazing. Mm-hmm. And if we could bring those back with animated covers, it would just be the best of both worlds, in my nice. opinion. <laughs> One thing I noticed, I started buying iTunes albums when I didn't have my laptop and I was like desperate for new music to steal. So a lot of the iTunes covers, they now, the, the albums move. Oh, really? If you buy something from iTunes, like Taylor Swift's light, Lighter Flickers for Midnight's. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I really love this one artist, uh, Rena Sure. Oh, God, I don't know how to say her last name. I love her, though. But, like, she's got this red album with kind of clouds in the background that move around. And I bought Anita's album, and it spins. Like, it's... Oh, that's cool. It, like, movement is happening. And you're it's right. It should like be a book Google cover. Google book covers. Have you yeah. seen those? Mm-hmm. It's, like, the Google Lens, and you scan it. A book of Gothel, off the top of my head, I know is one. And you, like, scan mm-hmm. it with Google Lens, and the whole cover moves. Yeah. So uh, we are just going to eventually turn the covers into GIFs, I guess. <laughs> one day. I hope not, because that would make me it's really okay. seasick, I feel like. <laughs> I really like drawn covers, okay. illustrated covers. You're allowed to. I, I know it cl- does I do clash okay. with YA, but I do think they have distinct differences. Mm-hmm. My issue with illustrated covers, and I'm not a good drawer, so I come from this with n- really no authority. I think I know what you're about to say. Some of the ugliest covers I have ever seen are illustrated yeah and I think it really impacts people's perception of the book and they're on like really high selling books too yeah like they're great books with just these awful covers and it's like did this publisher not put in the resources or the time? You and I were actually just talking about something wild and wonderful, which yeah. is the PCT one. And you're like, I hate that cover because mm-hmm. it's it's two faces on the cover in there. Listen, I cannot draw a face <laughs> to save my life. I can draw horses and I can draw a hand and that's about it. But mm-hmm. I like... They're kind of creepy faces. They're creepy faces. I was also looking at Red, White, and Royal Blues cover the other day, and Alex and it's like and Henry's abnormally faces flat. <laughs> so janky. Yeah. Uh, so when it's done right, um, this might also be an unpopular opinion for uh, fans of you know Tessa Bailey, but I love the illustrated covers for her backlist that's being republished. Oh. I think they look good, guys. Like the too hot to handle book. Yeah. I don't, I think it comes down to, I don't like that style. Mm-hmm. It's, oh gosh, I can't even think. There's a Regency historical Martha Kelly, maybe. I, I'm going to, I'll put it in the show notes that I love her covers. 
And I just don't like the style of the new Tessa Bailey covers, personally. No. Yeah, and that's what's so hard, I think, about covers. It's art style. Is art styles and preference. And oh, I, I just feel bad for marketing. <laughs> Jen <teams>. goes, oh, ew. <laughs> <laughs> like, it just looks cheap. Yeah. I think it's cheesy and I love it. Okay. okay, it's camp. It's camp, and I just feel bad for marketing teams who have to try and decide, will this appeal to the biggest yeah. audience to sell? That would just be too much pressure. I feel like some of it, too, is what you're used to growing up. Mm-hmm. So, like, me and Jackie are older than Thomas. <laughs> so, yeah, I had a lot of my mother's, like, retro paperbacks with the flip back and, like, the fancier, more ridiculous, elaborate, dramatic things. So, like, this to me is just, like, God, it's, like, kid stuff. Like, what am I on Cartoon Network? <laughs> I if love I wanted cartoon. <laughs> okay, Gen Z. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do also we pivot to like one of our last things is how these covers create visibility for romance novels, like actual physical visibility. I can go out and I can scan these library shelves right now and be like romance, 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 yeah. gay romance, romance, mm-hmm. romance. It's both like the size because they have shifted the size of the romance book. It's like what? Six by eight or something like that. Six by anyways, you guys know what size I'm talking about mm-hmm. versus the small traditional paperbacks we used to have, but also these bright candy covers actually help identify romance books and help identify gay romance books even more so than we have and I wonder if this visibility can be a bad thing Jen was gonna say something yeah, before I said that well, okay anyways I didn't, know, I didn't know that was the question you were ending up with because I was gonna argue I was you pivoting, could always kind of tell go. what a romance book looks like like Fabio definitely was not like nuclear fission but think about Nora Roberts <laughs> she I still say Nora Roberts looks like romancy like Some at, at the very least, it's like chiclet, which I don't really like the phrase of, yeah, but, but it's still like women's fiction. Yeah, I mean, typically, I can't think of too many romances where it's iffy. Uh, the only one, you know, which one is confusing? Lessons in Chemistry. That book, it is not That's a, romance a romance at all. It's not. Oh. That's the point. But it looks like a romance, and so many people like it's got a good morning pushed America it back. Stamp. I know it's not a romance. <laughs> that too, but people didn't know that in the beginning, and yeah. I had a lot of people I tried to give this to, and they're like, "Oh no, I don't read romance." Yeah. So like it flips too, where yeah. it's like. The cartoon covers are going too far. And I think like, I don't know, maybe because we've, we've been in Romance Landia too long. I can always tell a romance cover even without the cartoon. Yeah. I don't, I can't, I don't know. Can you I will say I was just duped by Alexis's Hall, Alexis Hall's newest one, mm-hmm. which I, it does still have romance. It's called Mortal Follies and it's oh. actually a fantasy. Oh. And there's like romantic elements to it, but Alexis Hall this is not necessarily a romance, my friend. So I was very surprised. Yeah, my clerk slapped a fantasy sticker. I was like, it's not fantasy, it's romance. Oh. But your your question before. Sorry. Okay, what yeah, no. Um, visibility. So, and this goes back to publishing, and this can kind of be our big wrap-up question. Visibility. Do we think that this is an authentic push towards a more inclusive industry with gay romance, romance in general, or is it simply a feeble response to societal trends? And I did take the feeble response to societal trends as a quote. So, sorry. Those are not my own words. <laughs> I think it's both. Do you care to elaborate? Oh, I thought, I don't know. I wasn't sure if this was going to be like call and response and you still need to no, take a talk. I, I do believe you that there probably are some people in publishing that like genuinely care and want to be like a good person like and push about. the envelope, yada, yada. And I think there's lots of people too that are just like no money. So they see the way the wind is blowing, like, 
Debbie McCumber. Yeah, I mean, companies really only care about making money. I'm sorry if that's controversial or if you're like, no, some billionaires are really good. They're not. Like, <laughs> Jen Target, hates billionaires. Target would not have a pride camp, pride collection if they didn't see that it was making money. Yeah. You know, like yeah. Oreo would not have had one of the first pride ads if they didn't know it was going to make money. Like Bud Light's problem right now is that they were trying to speak to two different sets of people and that's why they're in trouble right now like you've got to pick a side yeah I like how I gave you the microphone I was like yeah. wait no I want to talk mm-hmm. no so Patty Gonia did a pride commercial for North Face and it is fantastic she is hiking in like six inch stilettos and she pulls like a knife out of her high heel it's great um but yeah that's why they're mad at North Face and okay. Patagonia so you know but they're like hey we are full of granola girlies we've been gay this whole time yeah <laughs> So I think it's they know it's profitable mm-hmm. for some people to be, you know, very progressive and gay friendly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think it's trendy either. Yeah, I'm going with what Jen said. It's it's an intersection of these two things. It's a response to capitalism. <laughs> Not to keep whipping that word out, but it is profitable and they're doing it because of that. And but I, I hesitate to use the word trend because trend implies that it'll go away. Mm-hmm. And maybe 10 years from now, Thomas is listening to this and going, <laughs> LOL. Um, but I'm going to say now, knock on wood, that I don't think it's going to go away. Knocking on wood, yep. Uh, and so this is just a response yeah. to changing times. And it's inevitable. Like, it can't go away because I the last study i read was like out of gen z 50 percent are identifying as queer yeah so like i think that's what's scaring people the most is like their way of life is not much longer here mm-hmm. yeah i mean we've been seeing this since stonewall of yeah. these clashes in culture and this clash mm-hmm. against queer identity and you know queer people being like no we're here say it loud gay is proud mm-hmm. right like We've been here. We've been wanting to read these books that represent our our people, <laughs> but at the same time that are full of joy. And yes, we can talk about the hard stuff like coming out and we can talk about, you know, societal pressure and understanding and like, you know, having to break up with your family maybe or, you know, all the bad stuff. But at the same time, we can talk about gay love stories mm-hmm. and we can have a happy ending and we can have this explosion of extra stories and of all these different types of stories too that weren't available to us 5 10 15 years ago and how companies brand things has been like a constant problem so like they just go in line with what's the most popular right and it's been like this forever like target like the, like it's the publishing always, it's not doing anything new no. it's always gonna be it's always gonna be i like mean this. we've been stonewall was what 80 years ago no. i said math it's math not even hard. a generation ago really my dad's 85 yeah so like he was probably alive for the well he was alive for this yeah like it's not math. i think my dad was a teenager yeah so like these people are still very much here yeah they, yeah and you mm-hmm. know it's i i am a historian my background is in archaeology humans have been around for millennia Mm -hmm. and we have had issues for millennia 80 years is a drop in the bucket and we've made really good like strides and lots of good changes and you know we're having all these books that we can now read that are fun and we've had all these civil rights movements but we still have to we still gotta work it's one step forward two (laughs) step back yeah forever one step forward two step back exactly but forever just remember to keep you know 
money counts in capitalism. So keep buying the gay books. Keep going to the library mm-hmm. and checking them out. Keep talking about them. Keep recommending them. If you need recommendations, you can email us at ragingromantics at nopal.org. If you'd like to give Thomas a shout out, you can email us at ragingromantics at nopal.org. If you'd like to tell us a book to read, you can email us at ragingromantics at nopal.org. Are you guys getting the picture yet? But anyways, I think that about wraps up this discussion. Thank you guys for a very good conversation. Huzzah, we did it. Thank you, Thomas, for joining us. We couldn't have done it without you. Final words. Thank you, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Don't let the quiet voice fool you. He is is very... Don't worry, he'll be back. (laughs) Just all-encompassing. Well, he's coming back this summer, Yes, and he is coming back this summer. We Mm -hmm. have yet to figure out what he's going to be doing with us. But (gasps) surprise, you're coming back to us. Um, Jen, I wouldn't normally ask you what we're doing next time, but Jen is a lucky duck. I don't know about lucky. I'm the, well, this she's is my busy suffering season. in other ways. Yeah, it's gonna be a little different. Yeah. Um. So Jen is currently, as this episode is coming out, kicking off summer reading on the yeah. pop up truck and dying and crying in a corner <laughs> as I'm her dog cr- watches. It's not much so crying as it is sweating. Yeah, that's the heat is really yeah. bad. Yeah. No, I will not be doing any episodes for the next two months because I will be going crazy in the truck. She will still be joining us yeah. as she can. Mm-hmm. Um. But that just means you guys get Jackie episodes, mm-hmm. Jackie and Thomas episodes. Um, um, so I hope you guys are ready for a lot more history <laughs> and some special guest stars besides Thomas. Okay, there's like one special guest star. Um, but yeah, so next month we are going to be starting off a series that goes back into our lost genres. Okay. We're going to be talking about medieval history. Oh boy. Huzzah. <laughs> well, on that note, again, thank you, Thomas and Jen. Thomas, what do we hey, always hey, say? Hey, what about what are we reading? Oh, I that part. <gasps> oh, I thought that you were... Like gearing me up for it. No, no, no. I thought you were like prepping me. <laughs> no, I legit forgot. You. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, what are we reading, Jen? I'm actually not reading anything. <laughs> I just watch you. What am I reading? I oh, I can talk about. So I just finished a book, and this is again a very Jackie book. It's called Girls and Their Horses, and it is a thriller about the competitive hunter jumping horse show world. And it starts off with a body is found in a horse stall that has overdosed on drugs. Um, sorry, trigger warning for that one, um, who has overdosed. And then it goes back six months prior to when a family joins a very exclusive hunter jumper stable and buys horses and the girls. And it's just like so dramatic. If you love, if you were a pony club girl, like you watched the pony club, or if you watch like real housewives of OC of OC, any like drama show and you want it to be about horses, Mm. girls and their horses and the ending, I love it because I'm a horse girl, but like it was, it was good. It was fun. It was like crack. (laughs) Did I talk about Dear Prudence on an episode? Okay, good. So one of the ones I just read that I really enjoy, I am actually an advice column person. Like I love reading them and getting all the drama that I am not personally involved in. I find it very satisfying and a little petty of me probably. (laughs) But one of my favorite ones is from Dear Prudence, which is done by Slate.com. And it's, they update like two or three, four times a week. It's a lot of stuff, different kind of categories, uh, parenting, sex, life, financial, things like that. So one of my favorite ones was from Daniel M. Laverty. And he just released a whole collection of like some of his most favorite questions and advice he gave. And he went into some details about why he said the things he said. It's half memoir too, because he talks about himself and his own family. And he has had a kind of dramatic life in the last couple of years. So Dear Prudence, Daniel Laverty really really interesting you don't have to have read his column before you can just enjoy all of the drama and the messiness just through this book just like this and it's a very fast read i was done with it in like a day 
Uh, I'm doing a reread. Uh, it's called Marriage, a History, How Love Conquered Marriage oh, by nice. Stephanie Kuntz. That I cool. took a class in college uh, called Plotting Marriages, which was literally mm. just an entire class about the history of marriage, which That's I've cool. been very fascinated with, uh, especially ever since you know gay marriage was legalized. So it really dissects the entire institution of marriage and really uh, pulls back the myths that we think. I have not. I really want to. Yeah. I was kind of obsessed with them when I was growing I didn't watch them, but just like the whole quiver fill thing of it was really <laughs> weird to me. And they I they're gonna say talk weird, a but... lot about like marriage and Mormons at IBLP, so I think you should. Oh, I'll mm. check that out. Don't remember what it's called. Just search Duggar documentary. Okay. <laughs> well that Netflix one was really good too about the uh, polygamists. Yeah. Mm. That, that one was really, really good. good. That one too in the, about the marriage and the relationships. Yeah. That was really interesting. Very okay. depressing. Oh, well, it is. I mean, if it's a documentary about marriage, it's probably something wrong. not happy. <laughs> All right. Well, for realsies this time, thank you. Thank you. I'm saying thank you individually to Thomas and John. So I don't know why I just thank John. But anyway, <laughs> thank you for being awesome. Um, Jen, Thomas, what do we always say? Rage, Rage on! Huzzah! <laughs> Bye, guys. Happy Pride Month. <laughs>And speaking of libraries, I do want to remind you guys that, like, Nopal was a former Nopal employee. Me and Jackie are current Nopal employees. Nopal was a former Nopal employee. <laughs> <laughs>